If you'll please stand with me for the reading of the word, and you may look in your programs or in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard round the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of God. May he add his blessing to it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we are mindful of the fact that we would understand what you are speaking to us through your word this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be here to teach and to instruct us. Give us eyes to see and hearts to believe. And we pray, Father, that you would be pleased to move us to see the beauty and wonder of Christ, who is indeed the Lion and the Lamb. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. If you're like me, you get a little bit upset sometimes at the way that heaven gets portrayed in popular culture. Songs and movies and music and TV shows and different things like that. Heaven is seen largely as a place of beauty and peace and rest and a place for reuniting with lost loved ones. I have loved ones who are very dear to me whom I've lost. I cannot wait to see my father again. I cannot imagine what it would be like to walk up and shake the hands of John Calvin or Martin Luther 
or Charles Spurgeon or the apostles John and Peter and Paul. I cannot imagine what it's like to see the prophets of the Old Testament, real men who really lived and died and who now are alive with Christ in heaven awaiting the resurrection of the body. But if your view of heaven stops at the reunification of the church, then you have sadly missed out on the entire point of heaven itself. And I think the Apostle John calls us to a vision of heaven that for some of you may be fresh and new. And if it's not, I hope that it will at least reinforce what it ought to be. Samuel Rutherford, a great Scottish covenanter, said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without you, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and have you still, it would be heaven to me, for you are all the heaven I want. There is a great central theme and focus in heaven, and it is not us. We live our lives thinking that this whole story is about us. We're the central characters. We're the great heroes. We're the central theme. And we miss out on the fact that there is a greater theme, a greater character who is central to this story. And we are called to join in in the rapture of worshiping him. Is heaven about the reunification of lost loved ones? You bet. It's no less, but it's far more. And John calls us to see that this morning. Revelation can be a very scary and intimidating book filled with all sorts of mysterious symbols and metaphors, dark and enigmatic. It's difficult to understand. Charles Spurgeon said when recommending commentaries that he had very few that he could recommend on this book. He said, while there is a blessing that is attendant to those who read this book, it appears the like blessing has not fallen upon those who attempt to teach it. I remember one time many years ago, I decided I would teach through it in a Bible study. And as I was preparing, I started looking at my normal commentaries, and I realized John Calvin didn't write a commentary on Revelation. He said, I don't understand the book. That was very encouraging as I was about to begin my study. One of my greatest heroes said, I don't understand the book. It's very mysterious. And on top of that, I had a lot of baggage to dispense with. Coming from a sort of dispensationalist background, I had the idea that these uh, locusts were attack helicopters, and I was looking for how to read the book into and weave it into sort of modern-day newspapers and news stories, and we were waiting for when this was going to happen next, and this event was going to happen next, and surely this would signify this event uh, according to the book of Revelation. But when I stepped back and took a look at it and realized that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, as John says at the beginning of the book, and that while there's a lot in here that I can't possibly understand or fully fathom, yet there is a lot in here that I can understand, and there's a lot in here that provokes worship. So I have three points this morning that I want to focus upon from this text. First of all, weep. John, the apostle, weeps. Chapter 5 actually begins in the middle of a vision as John is seeing the great throne room in heaven. The temple is structured upon this throne room. The temple was an earthly type 
of the reality that is in heaven where God dwells. And so this is the holy of holies. This is the holiest place of all. This is a place that the prophet Isaiah was caught up into. And he saw God high and lifted up and seated upon his throne. And he cried, and the seraphim were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the doorposts were shaking at the sounds of their voices. And Isaiah cried out, Oh, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But it actually begins in chapter 4. And chapter 4 focuses mainly upon the praise of God in his creation and his work of, of making all things. And in chapter 5 moves to his praising God for his redemption, for his redeeming a people unto himself from the earth. And so John says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. There's a lot of speculation as to what this scroll represents. I think it may be fairly safely said that the scroll represents God's counsel, God's plan, God's decree, God's determined uh, plan for the universe. And he holds it in his right hand, awaiting the champion who can break the seals and unleash his plan fully. And then this angel comes forward to set up the scene and cries out, notice with a loud voice, and he's a mighty angel. There are no weak ones. It's just that this one particularly caught John's attention because this one was mightier than the others. A strong and a mighty angel in a loud voice cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. There's a challenge that is put out. A gauntlet that is thrown down. Who will enter the arena? Who will sign up his name in the list? Who will accept this challenge? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Was able to open the scroll or to look into it. There was no one who was found worthy. It's kind of a setup. God knows what's happening next. He knows that Jesus Christ is going to come forward and take the scroll out of his hand. But it helps to draw us away from this idea that Jesus Christ was just an ordinary person. That Jesus Christ was just some sort of a superhuman being, a superman. Jesus Christ was God incarnate with a special office, with special privileges, with special prerogatives that give him the right to step forward and take the scroll out of the Father's hand that no one else, no other created thing in all the universe is able to take. No one in heaven, no one on earth, and no one under the earth can step forward and take the scroll but Jesus Christ alone. But when John sees that no one is found worthy to take the scroll, he began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. I remember whenever I used to read this, I thought it was strange that he would weep at this point. And some commentators have speculated that perhaps he was weeping because uh, he was so curious to find out what was in the book. I'm sure there's a certain measure of curiosity that John had. And certainly uh, what is revealed in the book comes in the, the following chapters But I think there's more than that to this. I think if it's symbolic of God's decrees, of God's plan, of God's orders for all of the universe, of God's bringing about his 
desired design in his creation. And no one is found worthy to come and open that book. Then how will God's plans be fully instituted? And I think this is what moves the apostle to weep. He wants to see God's purposes accomplished. He is hoping that God will do all that he has purposed in the earth. And yet it seems like it is being hindered at this point and that it will not be fulfilled. And I think this is what causes him to weep. God is infinitely wise and infinitely good. And whatever God has purposed for the earth has to be good as well. And John wants to see it fully accomplished. And how will it be done if no one is worthy to execute what God has designed? Here are the mighty angels. Here are the cherubim. Here are the seraphim. Here are holy beings who never fell, who never rebelled, who never entered into sin, who are greater in power and might and glory than we mere mortals are. And yet not one of them is worthy to take this book. The strong angel who proclaims with a loud voice who is worthy. He's not worthy. The angels all have to step back and say, not I, not I. I'm not worthy to take this book. I'm not worthy to unleash the plan of God. No one is found worthy. No created being in all of the universe is worthy to unleash God's plan. And so John weeps. And the angel, or then the elder comes forward and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He says, weep no more. There is one who is worthy. There is one who has conquered. He is called here the root of David. In other places, he is called the branch, which shows his offspring by natural generation from David as one of David's physical descendants. But here he's called the root of David to show that he is God from before all time. But he's also called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I would not skip over this too hastily because the main focus on the rest of this chapter is going to be on his nature as lamb. But here first, the elder refers to him as a lion. Lions are fearsome beings. The king of the jungle. Who would not be terrified to be face to face with a lion without some sort of cage or partition in between them? And John is told, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. A reference to the prophecy in Genesis chapter 49 that Jacob gave whenever he was blessing his sons. And he told Judah that a lion would come from his descendancy. That the scepter would be in his power. The kingly rule would rest with that tribe. And so that is why Jesus had to be physically descended from the tribe of Judah to fulfill that prophecy he is a lion because he is the king because he is the supreme ruler because he is the sovereign our pastor just finished preaching a series of sermons on jesus role as prophet priest and king and this denotes his kingship unless you think that jesus cute and cuddly in the manger as a little baby is nothing to fear Just a few chapters later in Revelation chapter 19, John said, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We don't often see these verses put on cute little quotes that we can hang about our house for inspiration. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This harkens back to Isaiah again and to the prophecies that he made concerning the Lord Jesus Christ coming out to tread down the winepress of God, to judge the nations, to bring justice to the earth, to destroy his enemies. He is a king. People are quite fine with a little baby in a manger. People aren't quite so fine with a guy who rides forth on a white horse in white clothes with hair that is white, with feet that are like brass, and with eyes that are flames of fire. And out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword by which he shall judge his enemies. Later, whenever it describes the final scene of the last battle, all the armies of the earth are gathered together to fight against the Lord. The Lord rides out of heaven. And the next scene is the judgment. Not much of a battle. He has triumphed over his enemies. He has conquered evil. He has once and for all destroyed wickedness. Before we get to the part about his being a lamb we need to make sure we understand that he's also a lion. Before we get to the part about his sacrifice, we need to make sure that we also understand that he is a king, that he is the mighty God himself, and that he will destroy all of those who oppose his reign. To resist him is sheer folly of the highest order. There is no chance of anyone surviving who has ever opposed him. I love a phrase that C.S. Lewis liked to repeat over and over again. He is not a tame lion. He's not my pet. I don't keep him in my back pocket. He is fierce and he is ferocious. He will come in justice to execute God's judgment upon the earth, and all who have refused to obey him will suffer the fury of his wrath. God Almighty has given him this office, has appointed him as judge over all the earth. There is no hope, there is no help outside of him. The great and fearsome judge, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will return to tread out the winepress of God's wrath. And if you remain outside of his covenant, if you remain stubborn and hard-hearted and rebellious and say, who is the Lord that I should fear him? You will find out on that day, much to your regret, that he is a fearful being. the lion of the tribe of Judah. He marches out against his enemies. 
when he came to this earth, he came in weakness. He came as a common baby. He came and was born into human flesh. He grew up as one of us. And then when it came time to offer up himself upon the cross, he did so freely. And in his weakness, he proved himself stronger than the mightiest. In his weakness, he overcame all of the forces of darkness. He crushed the head of the serpent once and for all. What do you think he will do when he marches forth in all of his resplendent glory and power? If in his weakness, Satan couldn't resist him, How will anyone be able to resist him when he comes forth in his power and glory? Kiss the son, as the psalmist says, lest he become angry and you perish out of the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. But John looks now, and we come to the second part, to the wonder between the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. He looks expecting to see a lion, but looks at, look at what he sees. I looked and I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He's standing. Why? Because he's alive. But he's a lamb as though he had been slain because he was once dead. At the beginning of the book, he tells John, I am he who is dead, and behold, I live forevermore. He is a lamb that was slain. And slain for what? The priest, who is also the sacrifice who gave himself up freely for his people to die for for their sins. I look to see a lion and I see a lamb standing there. I don't know about you, but I've often considered this. When we get to heaven, will we be able to see Jesus' wounds still? I hope we shall. My youngest daughter got to hear the sermon over two nights of devotions. Recently, so she's already heard the story. I doubt that the story is true, but allegedly many years ago, and the story may have been invented just to help illustrate a point for a sermon, but allegedly many years ago, there was a teenage daughter who was preparing for a party with some of her friends, and she had uh, was busy around the house trying to get everything prepared and ready to make sure the house was in pristine condition, make sure all the foods were out and everything looked good and proper, And then she went to her mother and pulled her aside and said, Mom, if you wouldn't mind, would you wear your nicest white gloves when my friends arrive? And her mother smiled knowingly and said, Yes, dear, I'd be happy to do so. Her mother's hands were terribly scarred and disfigured. And she knew her daughter was saying she would be ashamed of those scars, and so she would gladly cover them up for her daughter's sake. Her aunt happened to be visiting from out of town, And she overheard this conversation. She pulled the young girl aside and she said, did your mother never tell you where she got those scars? And the little girl said, no, I've just always known them to be there. So I assumed whenever she was a kid, some sort of childhood accident. She goes, shortly after you were born, your mother was awakened one night. 
There was an eerie, orangish, reddish glow in the room. There was a smell of smoke, the sound of crackling timbers. She immediately sprang from her bed. She knew what had happened. The house was on fire. And her one and only thought was that down that long hallway was a little baby that was helpless and needed to be rescued. And as she walked down the hallway, she saw that a huge timber had fallen across the doorway and was ablaze, blocking the entrance to that room. But she had to get in there to save that child. And so that any thought or care for her own well-being, she reached out with her bare hands and grabbed a hold of the timber and pushed it to the side and then rushed into the room and wrapped the now smoldering flesh in a baby's blanket and picked up that tiny child and cradled her in her arms and carried her outside to safety. That child was you. And those scars are the marks of a mother's love for her child. The little girl with tears streaming down her face went to her mother and said, Mother, please do not ever wear those gloves again. Those are the most beautiful hands I've ever seen. I have sinned against the holy God. The wrath that he has poured out should be poured out upon me. I deserve to be punished for what I've done wrong. He is not only holy, he is thrice holy. Angelic beings fly about his throne room crying out, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, and I am anything but holy. I'm not worthy to approach. I'm not worthy to come before his throne. I'm not worthy to take that scroll. I should suffer his eternal wrath. God should pour it out upon me. But someone steps forward and says, no, I'll take his place. I'll rescue my child. I will save him from the fire. I will deliver him from the darkness. I will deliver him from his sin. Jesus Christ steps in my place. Jesus Christ spreads out his hands to bear the wrath of the Father. In the cross, we see the wrath and justice of God. And in the cross, we see the love and mercy of God, both perfectly commingled. The love of the Father who would send His Son, the love of the Son who would say, I will go and die in their place. And when John sees the Lamb standing as though it were slain, I hope that I get to behold the scars there upon his hands and feet and side because I think they shall be the most beautiful scars I've ever seen in all of my life. What is it like to look upon him who died for me? Knows too, he's worthy. He goes and he takes the scroll. I was thinking about this a little bit last night. What's it like to approach the holy God? None of us may come before him on our own. I come in the name of another. What's it like to go before God? No one dares approach, but Jesus does. He walks up and he takes that scroll from his hand. And because he has died, we may walk up and we may approach the Holy God as well. On the day that he died, the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom to show that the entrance into the most holy place is now allowed because of what Jesus has done for us.
the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. When John the Baptist was preaching, he looked up and he saw Jesus approaching. And he told all of his listeners, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The writer of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We are criticized today because Christianity is a bloody religion. Yes, it is. And I will make no apologies for it because it's the only way that I'll ever be saved. If it were not for the blood of Christ, I could not be washed from my sins. If it were not for the blood of Christ, I could not be received into heaven. If it were not for the blood of Christ, I could not have entrance before the Father. I could not be called His Son. If it were not for the blood of Christ and Christ alone, the blood of lambs and bulls and goats can never atone for the sins of man. Why? Because bulls and lambs and goats never sinned against Almighty God. They obeyed their Creator. They didn't willfully enter into rebellion. We did. So the Lamb of God had to become a man. God the the, the Son had to become one of us to offer up flesh and blood upon the cross so that full atonement might be made for our sins. Is it a bloody religion? Yes, because it's the only way we can possibly be saved. And now notice it moves from weeping to wondering to worshiping. After he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I think the four living creatures could be uh, seraphim because they're described as having six wings. The 24 elders, some believe, are a council of angels who are uh, a council for God. Uh, I, I have to wonder if they don't represent the church. Later on in the book, John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and has 12 gates and the 12 gates have the names of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel and 12 foundation stones and each foundation has the name of one of the 12 apostles. So we see the perfect unity of the church, Old and New Testament alike in the the the, uh, 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So I have to wonder if they don't represent the church uh, in heaven worshiping and praising God. But they have golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Our prayers are like incense before God. They go up as a sweet aroma before Him. When we cry out to God and pray to Him, it's a sweet aroma before Him. And how will we neglect such an opportunity that we have to pray before Him then? And then they cry out with a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is a central focus of worship in heaven. God who sits upon the throne and Jesus Christ, the great God-man, the mediator between man and God. This is the central focus of heaven. And without this, there would be no heaven. It's not lush green valleys or beautiful mountains. It's not a restored and rejuvenated earth. Though all of those things are going to happen. The real focus of heaven is Jesus the Christ. This is where our worship is to be devoted. And here is a clear 
declaration of his deity as well because we are forbidden to worship any created being. And yet all of heaven gathers together in this great cacophony of noise in worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, the great lion and the lamb. This is the central theme of heaven. It will be nice to see dead loved ones. It will be nice to see those who have gone before us. It will be nice to enjoy all that God has prepared for us and rejuvenated heaven and earth. But here is the great theme of heaven, Jesus Christ. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now think about this for a moment. As John stands there, he looks around and he goes out in kind of concentric circles. Here's the throne and here's the four living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, more than I can possibly count, an innumerable company. Remember, God is titled the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He has, he has a mighty army of angels with him. And these angelic creatures cry out, and they don't just sing softly. They cry out with a loud voice. God help us to be loud and vocal in our worship. There are people who sit in front of me in church who wish I wouldn't be so loud and vocal. I am not a singer. But I can't help myself, especially if it's a good song. God help us to be loud and vocal in our worship. Shall we let the angels of heaven who were not redeemed by the blood of Christ out worship us? We have been ransomed. We have been declared kings and priests unto our God. We are a royal priesthood. How shall we not cry out with a loud voice? If the angels are crying out with loud voices, let us join with them in praising God and giving glory to the Lamb who was slain. And let us do so loudly, vocally. I thought about this sound. Imagine what it must have sounded like. An innumerable company of mighty angels of God saying with a loud voice. They didn't whisper. They didn't say it softly. They say it with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then it goes even further. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. If you have no familiarity with the things of God, if you have not yet met the Lamb who is slain, then I pray that you will before it is too late. But if you have, if your heart has truly been converted, if you truly trust in Jesus Christ, Remember that he is mighty. And what a privilege it is that we have to be called his sons and daughters. 
to be the object of his love and affection. That God the Father has loved us from before the foundation of the world and has sent his Son to die on our behalf. May our hearts be caught up in worship and may our voices give out loud declarations that the Lamb is worthy.